This is Tony Island Audio, and I'm Open Mike Eagle, and my microphone probably sounds a little bit different than what you're used to hearing. Recording this intro in a hotel room, currently on a UK tour. We just played Birmingham tonight, and yes, what this means is I should have done these intros a long time ago. So this is what we get. We get me in a hotel room. We're talking about season three episode nine of what had happened was in this episode we speak with dante ross about one of the greatest mcs of all time del the funky homo sapien dante signed del they released his debut album i wish my brother george was here and a deal that involved ice cube and they released his second album no need for alarm and in between those two albums del's crew hyro started to blow up fueled by the hit 93 till it's all an interesting story as always and uh dante lays it out for us um adding on to a season where we've heard incredible stories about p rock and cl smooth mf doom brand nubian queen latifah de la soul we're very fortunate to have a legend who's been in so many places and seen so many things this is the Stony Island Audio Podcast Network. I'm Open Mike Eagle and I'm in a hotel room. Let's get to this episode. Also, check us out on YouTube. There's full episodes of what had happened was. Like and subscribe on there and rate and review on here. It helps the robots love us. I'm Open Mike Eagle. This is season three. What had happened was episode nine. Dell the funky homo sapien. Welcome in, this is Open Mike Eagle. This is season three of what had happened was, y'all. We got another very special guest with us. He needs no introduction, but... If you ever read the line of notes on classics from all kind of folks, you know who knew where to find the dope. It's Dante serving stories like entrees. I guess for season three, it's a giant like Andre. Mr. No Shit Taker, the third base hit maker. Eganar innovator, the ODB motivator. He signed a roster full of heavy hitters. Office messenger, the Grammy winner. Motherfucker Dante Ross. In the 90s, you would call him the plug. Signing act after dope act. He saw in the clubs was Pete, CL leaders, Dale, and all the above. If you don't know him, don't call him a scrub. It's what it happened was. What up, y'all? This is Open Mike Eagle coming at you once again with another episode of the podcast. It is my damn pride and joy getting to talk to legends and, and, and uh, unpack their paths through this thing we call hip-hop. Got, once again, Mr. Dante Ross. How you doing today? Good, man. How are you? I'm doing all right, man. Doing all right, man. I you got know? up way too early today, that's for you sure. You and me both. I got up yeah. at 6.30. I can't tell you why. That's not my style. You know what? I've been having to get up at 6.30 because I got to take my son to school because uh, they're back in school now. So... Uh, I gotta, I gotta do something about what time I go to bed, cause there's no yeah. getting around this, this, yeah. this early rise for me. Yeah, I was up to like two writing, so I'm just a little spacey. But, but, and I woke up and I went right back to it. I was like, man, I gotta fix this. So <laughs> That's gotta, good though. That that wake up in the morning energy is so good for writing. Yeah, it is. I, I, at night I'm sloppy when I write, so daytime I write a little better. I think. So. I hear that. Well, uh, today. 
we're going to talk about another brilliant hip-hop writer, um, somebody whose career you were there at the beginning of, so I'm real eager to hear about that. We're talking about Dell the Funky Homo Sapien. Love that guy. I mean, it's Dell is... good to hear. It, it's hard to talk about Dell without talking about Hyro because it's all one thing to me, and I met them kind of as a collective. So mm-hmm. um, when I talk about Dell, I'll probably end up referencing Hyro a lot too. Yeah, because that's part of what's interesting, right, is that Dell has these solo albums. Souls of Mischief happens around the same time, yep. and you have the bigger collective of Hyro. So I'm real interested in, in how all that started. How did you end up meeting Dell? I met Dell because I was friends with Ice Cube. And Ice Cube and me were, I, I, I was convinced when America's Most Wanted came out. I knew Ice Cube, well, let me backtrack. I knew Ice Cube from NWA. Right. So I met NWA in LA um, at World on Wheels. Mm-hmm. No, Skateland, sorry, Skateland. Um, Dre and him. And, and I don't think Dre knows who I am nowadays, but, but I knew them. And I was like one of their first fans in New York. New York dudes wasn't really fucking with them. And me and a guy named Dave Funkenklein loved NWA. We thought Dope Man was so dope. And I thought Easy, I just thought it was so good. And I was vocal about telling them how I liked their music. So me and Cube remained friends. He came to New York. He didn't really know nobody. He didn't have a winter coat. I went with him to buy a winter coat. He had like a little ass Raiders varsity. I was like, it's winter in New York. That shit ain't cutting it. We went and bought a coat at like, Mo, like I don't know, somewhere. We got like a Woolrich coat or some bullshit. And, and they did the Urban Teen Awards. And people didn't really know what to make of them. They had Jerry Curls. But, but I was a fan. So if you look at the first end of the way up, they, they thanked me as Dante from Tommy Boy. That's dope. So I, I was friends with Cube. And we always talked about music. And he was like, yo, I got my cousin. And I think... You're gonna fuck with him. He he's kind of like a De La Soul digital underground. I think he's he he you know he's your cup of tea. So I tried. Oh, I, I forgot. I tried to sign Yo Yo. Oh, and interesting. I lost the okay. deal. Um. So when I lost Yo Yo, he kept kept in my ear, and he brought me Dell. What I did know is that Dell was writing Yo Yo shit. I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't know that either. I did yeah, read he, that Dell was writing stuff for like Lynch Mob. I didn't know he was he, writing he stuff. He wrote stuff. For, I think he might have wrote you. Party You Can't Play With My Yo-Yo, if I'm not mistaken. He he definitely wrote some of Yo-Yo shit. He definitely helped the lynch mob. And he definitely, he helped um, work on, I want to say, Alive on Arrival. And, and I could be wrong, Domino knows for sure. And Jackin' for Beats. And that was his idea, Jackin' for Beats. So, so, so Cube came to New York. And my boss, he was in Rolling Stone. He was the talk of the music industry. He was, you know, the most dangerous rapper alive or whatever it was. And my, my boss dug him and we did a deal for Dell. Um, or I decided I want to sign Dell. So I went to LA and met Dell Jinx, A plus, and Cube at my office. Jinx and Dell were going to be a group. Jinx mm. somehow got, he got pushed out the picture by, and, and Pooh ended up filling that slot. Um, and I signed out. DJ Pooh. Yeah, and his his demo had Dark Skin Girls Are Better Than Light Ones. Which is a wild song. As simple as it sounds, is as simple as it ought to be. Light skin girls like the dark skin quality. You don't understand? You want an explanation? Well, let DL release the frustration. Wild as hell. Um, I want to say, 
I don't know what else was on. That's the one I remember because it was so fucked off. And I was like, that's <laughs> such a fucked up song. I was like, this is great. So, so, so I ended up signing them. And um, I have lots of family in the Bay. My dad's from the Bay. My, I got my sisters out in, my, my sisters out in the Bay. And, and um, I have a lot of people in the Bay. So it was, it was also cool because I, I was like, oh, I can double dip. I get to be in the Bay and see my family. Um, mm-hmm. And I was a skateboarder, so I had lots of skateboarder friends out there. San Francisco's where I'm born. It's my second, it's really my second home. I was born there. I spent summers there. And I have a, a lot of love for that city. Um, so it was cool. I got to go out to Oakland and work with those guys. And um, I remember we, uh, Cube picked the first single and I was against it, sleeping on my couch. And I, I was right. I turned out I was mm-hmm. right. I thought Dr. Bombay should be first or, or one of those songs. Um, and it wasn't. It was, you know, it was sleeping on my couch, which I didn't particularly love. But prior to that, I'd already gone to, um, I'd been out to Oakland, not to Oakland, to LA, and worked with those guys at Echo Sounds, and and I arranged George Clinton to get on the record, and I flew him out there, and and it was cool, you know. And those guys were like, oh, Lynch Mob are real live fucking gangsters, and DJ Pooh, I already knew him because he um he had done the LL Cool J shit. I knew him from New York from being in the LA mm. posse. Pooh was my man, so it was cool to be with Pooh. I already knew him, and Cube was cool, and it was a good vibe, and. And this guy Rashad, you know, he was Pooh's right hand man. I don't know whatever happened to Rashad, but he was like they had their little crew, the Boogeyman, and and I want to say Threat was part of it too, but he wasn't really doing beats. But that was their little clique, and Rashad and and um, Pooh were were doing the beats with Dell. Dell was doing a lot of stuff too. They were kind of fixing it up and doing the arrangements. And Pooh's a great DJ, and he flew in the cinematic stuff, and they put in the Brides of Funkenstein. And all that kind of stuff. But at the at the core, some of those records were done by Dell, like Sunny Meadows. That's what I wanted as the first single. A one-two on Sunny Meadows. That and Sunny Meadows was on the demo, so it was a one-two. So and I wanted those records. And right. and Cube fought me and put out sleeping on my couch. But Sunny Meadows and a one-two are done by Dell and sprinkled by Pooh. But the core of those records are by Dell and a couple of the other ones too. But stuff like Dr. Bombay and Mr. Dabalina are more done by Pooh. Though the Mr. Dabalina sample from the Monkees came from Dell, and that was his idea. But you can tell by the drums what songs Pooh did. He always liked to use that Rufus Thomas drums, and he uses it on 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 that record, on that song, Mr. Dabalina. How was West Coast music perceived at the time? West Coast rap, like what state was it in? I mean, it was a lot of gangster rap, yeah. you know. But then there was also Cypress Hill was about to come out. Um, so, so it was, it wasn't full on. The G funk wasn't invented yet, and there were pockets of things that were relatable to the East Coast. Cypress was about to drop. I don't think the Far Side were out yet, but maybe they were. And and you know, there was that kind of thing that kind of part of hip-hop was in LA and and freestyle fellowship and all this other stuff was bubbling and then there was the other stuff which was like too short up in the bay or mm-hmm. Selly cell rbl all that stuff which which we call town music i don't know if you go up there much but there's also yeah, differentiation the, the town between, in the city yeah well there's town music and then there's hip-hop okay. so souls of mischief and hyro are hip-hop gotcha. but all that other shit is town music right that's that's just what we call it it's not even Frisco music could be town music. Gotcha. Town music, just a certain sound. Right. And they also called it mob music later on, like JT the Bigger Figure or Mac Mall and all that. So I was always kind of tuned into that shit just because I spent a lot of time out there. And, and then there's LA stuff, Compton's Most Wanted, NWA, Gangsta Rap, Ice Cube. So Gangsta Rap is popping. 
that was certainly not gangster rap. There was no East Coast West Coast beef yet, mm-hmm. and I and I honestly um, I, I liked a, I loved a lot of L, L.A. music and and G Funk wasn't really out yet. So if you listen to America's Most Wanted or Compton's Most Wanted or any of that stuff that was popping then, including DJ Quick, they're using the same records East Coast guys are using. Right. They're sampling at you that know, time, Isaac yeah. Hayes and. And, you know, like fucking Lee Dorsey and, yeah. and James Brown. And, I mean, they're going a little past James Brown. They're going a little, they're digging a little bit. So the records were, I, I say digging-wise, not quite as forward-thinking as New York. But dudes were talented. Quick's obviously talented. Pooh's really talented. Muggs, Dre. I mean, there was a lot of talented cats out there. And it was, it was more parallel. It, its own identity musically, not necessarily content-wise, hadn't necessarily been established yet. Mm-hmm. No, Dre changed it all when he did G-Funk. So you said Ice Cube uh, kind of pushed back against you and ended up having a say in what single got released. What was Ice Cube's like official position in terms of the album? Like what, what was well, he his- was he, he was the executive producer and Dell was signed to Street Knowledge, his record label. Mm-hmm. So it was signed to a production deal. Got you. And so Dell is 18 when you meet, when you start working with him? Man, he might have been 17. 17. Right okay. out of, so right out of high school. probably came out when he was 18. Yeah. So what, what made you feel like, just knowing him, that he was ready, you know, to, to be a star and kind of have this like solo well, career? I, I, tr- with- I, I trusted Cube a lot. Mm-hmm. I trusted Cube's vision a lot on it and kind of followed his lead. But, but in getting to know Dell and Hyro, I was completely enamored by how good they were at rapping. Mm-hmm. So I'll tell you a couple of a couple of stories. I introduced Domino to hieroglyphics. Okay. So I met Domino in a record store called Groove Merchant. My friend Mike McFadden and Jody they owned it, and I and they had a huge. It was it was like one of the first dedicated to rare groove, breakbeat, soul, funk, collectible, sampleable records in the whole country. So I went to the store every time I hit the bay, which was often. I love the Bay, like especially back then. There was like really good energy then there. I liked the Bay better than LA at that point. So I'd, I would always fall in there, and I became friends with Jody and and them and um and Mike. Mike was like, you know, I got this kid who rents the back. He's got a studio back there. His name's Domino, and he's he's really talented. He he buys a lot of the same kind of records you buy. You guys remind me of each other, and I was like, oh, that's cool. And and so he was, you know, he was like, yeah, I want you guys to meet. So he he introduced us, and I went back. I was at the store and I went in the back and me and Dom started talking and he's like, oh man, like, yeah, like, I know who you are. Like, I love Brand Nubian. And he was a rapper and a producer then. His name was Domino D. And I played him a Grand Poobah record I produced that sampled the Nightlighters. And he played me a beat he made off the same exact loop. So we bonded over our love of the Nightlighters. And then he played me a demo of his called Rhythmic American Poetry where he sampled the DOC. And it was pretty good, but the beat was better than his rapping. Gotcha. But I really liked him, and I didn't have the heart to tell him, maybe rapping's not for you. So fast forward, Gavin Conventions in San Francisco. I'm out there. We hang out. We run around. We have a crazy-ass night. He's my boy. We're wiling out. And I tell him I'm signing this guy, Dell, and, and he should meet them. So I connect them. They, he goes out to Oakland without me um, when I'm back in New York, and he hangs out with Kwame, who's Dell's road manager, and Dell, and they become friends. He meets the Hyro guys, and I think he played them some beats, and they like some of the shit, and so he starts being friends with them, and they're like on kind of a similar wavelength. Mm. So I um, come back, 
and we go, I come back a couple months later, we're out there, we haven't done the, the record yet, we're getting, we're starting to do it, and I go out to Oakland, hang out, and we sneak into a club in Oakland, climbing over the back fence, me and all of High Road, they're 17, and, and I can't remember if this is before sleeping on my couch or after the video, because we did the video in a single before the album was out and done. I wanna say it was after. We snuck in to this club, and we ended up going to, Opio's house, I think, or Tajay's, I think Ope's house, after the club, drinking and smoking, and me and Dom had beat tapes, and these motherfuckers rapped to daylight off our beat tape. Oh, I bet. And we're battling beat tape versus beat tape, and they're just rapping their fucking asses off. Literally three to four hours of rapping and smoking, and, and I'm just like, I have never, the only thing I'd seen like it was Native Tongues. Mm-hmm. I'd never seen a group of guys just rap like that before in my entire life. It was unfucking believable. If I had a cameraman, this thing would be priceless. We drive back to San Francisco and Dom told me, you know, I think I'm going to stop rapping and just make beats. And I said, I think that's a good idea. <laughs> so he, he ends up becoming a central figure of their crew and the manager and rocks with them forever. I will say that, and I think it was before this, I was in the backyard of the sleeping on my couch video and three things amazing happened. Mm. One, they all capped on Dell because they're like, that song's not even, that's not even a tight song, Dell. And dude starts snapping and the whole thing and, and Pooh and Cube are there and everyone's, everyone's snapping on each other. Everyone got jokes and dudes are like, yo, you, you're like, you're Ice Cube, you ain't even got the sag. Like, you ain't even sagging, gangster. And he, and he had cut his curl, like, where's the curl at? <laughs> and everyone's like, what happened to your gangster? And Pooh was just capping on everyone. He's so funny. Dudes are snapping so hard. And then a freestyle session breaks out. At the video shoot. Yo, someone has a boombox, they're rapping, and Casual puts on a fucking clinic. And he starts rapping about shit in the backyard. I'll take that clothespin off the line. And, t- and I was just like, who is this guy? Yeah. He freaked me out. I'd never heard, literally I'd never heard anyone freestyle that good off the top in my whole life. And I'm a guy who goes to Stretch and Bobito all the time right. and watches everybody. He was the only person I'd seen close to him at that time was Curious. Because mm. Curious could freestyle his fucking ass off. That was the only thing I'd seen like it. I remember that, and I remember all of them rapped, and they were so young, Festo came from high school to the video shoot with his knapsack. That's how young these guys were. And A-plus is a little kid, and I believe that's before we went and snuck in the club. So I signed Dell. The record comes out, or is is getting ready to come out. A one-two starts to get played in New York. People play the B-side. that's a great song. I'm chocolate like a ball, but my name is not Roseanne. My skin has a pigment reminiscent of a tan. I plan to grow dreads, but first the nappy throat. The longer the hair, the easier to scare a boat. It so it's great. And it's got, you know, it's got the beatbox. It's a great so who song. did the beat on that one? I had a hard time finding credit Del. for this album. Okay, Dell did it, but Pooh got the production credit, but Dell did it. I think Pooh added the little keyboards. Do-do-do, that little thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but but Dell did it, and that record starts getting running in New York. People like Q-Tip and them tell me he's dope. Muggs is telling me he's dope. I'm hearing it from people I like. The record comes out. It does good, not great. My head of promotion guy, Sean Diggable Planets himself, and he went for that record and kind of chumped us. 
Okay, so no he didn't really, they weren't really pushing it, and it was around Yeah, the same they didn't time. push it like they should have. It could have been bigger. And what started out as Cube's, in my mind, version of De La Soul had become Cube's version of Digital Underground. Interesting. With the funk and, Del, and all the stuff that, that yeah, came along you know, with it. Yeah, and Dell wasn't happy about that, in all honesty. It well, wasn't really... Let's chat through the singles for a sec. Yeah, yeah, sure. Mr. Dabalina, I, like, yeah. I remember this from when I was a kid. Like, that was like a big song. Mr. Dabalina, Mr. Bob Dabalina, Mr. Bob Dabalina want to quit. You really make me sick with your fraudulent behavior. You're gonna make me flip and then the army couldn't save you. That's a big song in the West Coast. Oh, right, because I was out here visiting, like, my fam in the West Coast. Yeah, and that song was, was big out that here. Was on, I mean, that was on K-Day, that was on KMEL. That was a big record. To this day, that's probably his biggest commercial record. Huh. And, and was, that your, was that one of your choices for a single? It was, um, okay. undoubtedly. I think it was all of our choices. I think pretty much we all knew that was a single. Because his rapping on it was, I mean, his rapping on it is so good. Dell, right? Like, this is, he's a small guy, but he has a huge, deep he's voice. A big voice, yeah. He's got Yo, a big it's cra- voice. And he talks exactly how he raps. I don't know. I just thought that song was genius. And I love the video, too. Is the title, uh, Wish My Brother George Was Here, is that a reference to George Clinton? Because people think it is. Okay. 100%. And, you know, George Clinton's all, he's narrating the record, right? Right. There's nothing harder to stop than that whose time has come to pass. They are the funky homo sapiens. You know, that should have been like, it could, it's funny. I would say that Digital Underground and that record predate G Funk. Right. But they're like, they're not really G Funk. They're like previewing G Funk. But you know, Easy did We Want Easy, which is We Want Bootsy. And yeah. that, you know, DOC did. So it was already mixed in a little bit. Yeah, because DOC wraps off the, the Funkadelic joint, um, the rock songs, you know, so Cosmic Slop. So, you know, it was in the air. And I, I would say that Cube and Dre both love P Funk. And you're saying that Dale didn't like that as much in terms of the sound? No, man. No. Dell was bummed out because his boys were making some other shit and his demos like were- Like Souls of Mischief and all right, that. Right, and his like, demos are more like a one-two and, and Sunny Meadow. Right. Those are his kind of records. So he wanted to do that more a De La Hiro, native tongue Hiro thing than, than be trapped in the funk box. Where was this, where was that first record made? Echo Sounds in Los Angeles. Okay, mostly. And, and so were you around for those sessions? I was. That's, it was a little- um, Little ass studio, Echo Sounds, everyone recorded. It was like the studio. It was the one. It was like as close to maybe a Chung King as LA had at that time. Um, a lot of people recorded there. But was any of that 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 discussion or that, you know, it was a general was that playing feeling. out in the, stu- in the studio? Well, the we kind of, the thing like we did with Dell is, and, and Dom and him had started getting really close and he became part of the crew and those guys were all producing was his B-sides became what he really wanted to be. Gotcha. So he put out Burn. Right, and Burn is popping in New York. People are stretching Bobito and all those kind of DJs of the world are playing burnt. Mm-hmm. It is rocking. It's rocking mix show land, underground hip hop across the country. And people are un- knowing who Hyro are. It's the first Hyro appearance. And they're, they're like, who the fuck are all these guys? So, you know, like Stretch Armstrong is one of my best friends in the whole world. And, and you know, Daddy Reef and me, super close. Stretch and Bob, that's fam. All these guys, we had our little crew. It's like me, 
Rob Tulo, who's Daddy Reef, who produced What Up, what Up Gangster for 50 mm. later, way later on in life. Me, him, Stretch, Bobito, a couple other cats, this dude Nick Quest, who's a video director. You know, that's curious. That's like a, you know, Doom. That's our little home team. Like, that's our squad. So Gavin is in San Francisco and, and Reef and them is there. So I want Reef and them are doing AR Big B. So I, I should have signed Souls of Mischief, but I, Dell hadn't popped yet, so I didn't know if it was going to be an easy sell right. to, to sign him. But I was like, yo, you should fuck with my boys. They're super dope. And it was Souls of Mischief. So they were in the stairway at Gavin, Souls of Mischief, Casual, Dell, Curious, Pharaoh Monch, and mm. Prince Poe. Whoa. All freestyling. Ooh. And it's one of the craziest ciphers I ever seen in my whole life. We were right in the stairway, Gavin, smoking blunts, off the lobby, freestyling. And motherfuckers got so fucking busy. Stupid, dumb, stupid busy. And Dell and them, I mean, Reef and them was like, yo, we got to sign the boys. And I was like, yo, let's, let's go up to the hotel room and smoke out and talk about it. I'm going to hook you up with them. We all went up there. And, and, and they decided we're going to sign Souls of Mischief. So look, those are my people, and I wanted to throw them the rock, right? Like yeah. Maddie C threw me old dirty bastard rock. I was like, let me throw the rock back. Maddie C is part of our crew too. Mm-hmm. Um, the the infamous Matt, you know, the legendary Maddie C, one of the greatest A and R people of all time, and my brother for life. So that's our little crew. I passed the rock to them. They're supposed to sign Souls of Mischief. They try and get the deal, and they battle, and they lose the deal to Jive. Mm-hmm. And and Sophia Chang comes in and gets them with the captain, my other good friend Sean Karazov. And, and I always felt some kind of way about that because I should have signed them and could have signed them, but I gave them to Reef and them and, and they Jive, the Records, Jive <laughs> Records pulled, pulled the rug out from under and got them. And you, know, you had credit, previous Credit to Sophia Chang. She, she, she hung in there hard to get them, and she got to know the guys really well. She put in the work. But I wish they had signed the Big B because I wanted my boys to get it. Mm-hmm. And... That sounds similar. I think you were you had signed tried to sign Tribe back in the day, and Jive ended up getting them right. It was the same 100%. same same folks involved? Like, nah, Sophia had nothing to do with signing Tribe. Okay. Okay. That that was all Barry, Jeff Fenster, and and uh, the captain. Yeah, that then Sophia. Okay. I don't think today and are then at that at that time. Got you. Uh, on the song, pissing on your steps, he gets that vanilla ice which is something people did a lot. But then he also gets yeah. that hammer. Yeah. And being in the bay, that seemed like a dangerous kind of move. The boy with no talent, use a step one and step two to keep the show valid. Let's have a vote and try to register our ballot and realize the hammer's just a mallet. You know, it's funny. Hammer never stepped on never and nothing ever happened. That's so interesting to me. You know, I don't, you know, so we talk like, I'll touch a hammer lightly. So all that shit with third base, man, if you talk to Pete about that, like he never tried to put a hit out on them. He he okay. definitely flexed on them, but Pete is like that should never happen. So it just kind of trumped up and, and and became mythology over the years. I mean, you know, search told the bullshit, I and see. It, you know, it just never really happened like that. And there's a there's a video of Pete and him arguing about it. And Greg Mack also put the thing out, and the tape is online. You can hear it when they're talking. So you know, search made a mountain out of a molehill with that one. I don't think I don't know if Hammer was like. I think that's small potatoes to hammer, you know. Um, I ne- I don't know hammer, so I don't know. Got you. He, se- he think, seems kind of cool. I think because of 
the stories over the years, you got the sense that Hammer was really stepping to people at that time, but maybe that wasn't the case. Uh, there, he also, Dell, says something about not being with the Daisies on that song. No, Dell, it's not a mean fellow. Just because I want to turn your dance shoes yellow. See, I'm rather mellow. Some call it lazy, me and myself. And I ain't with the Daisies. Yeah, I don't know what that's about. Maybe okay, he just I was got wondering, was being, like Daylight Maybe he got sick of being compared to De La Soul. Gotcha. Gotcha, but nothing ever came of that then. Nah, no no underlying beef that you Nah, he's like, I feel like Hyro was, you know, damn near in native tongues. They're like their cousins. That's my cousins from Oakland. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the album does come out, and you say it does okay, not, not great. It does like 300,000. Okay, which is, at the time is like fine. Right? That's cool. It's good yeah. enough to do another record. Right. And was that the case? Like, was it the kind of thing where if it failed, y'all wouldn't have did another record? If it did great, uh, yeah, most of the time, if any if any record fails, you don't do another record. That's the well, business. then you had a lot of success then, because I feel like barely anything that you had anything to do with didn't get second and third well, I, records. I think it all recouped, and that was usually success. And my boss at the time, Bob Krasnow, really believed in me, mm-hmm. and we got great critical response on everything. And he was a big fan of critical response. He believed if you had critical response, the people will come. Gotcha. If you make great music, the people will come. Do you, do you was, believe he, that to be true after all your years I, in the business? I, I, believed it, I believed it then. I don't mm. believe it now. Yeah. Now, I don't think it matters. That's real. You know, did Little Pump, did any critic ever like Little Pump? I don't if they think did, so. they were like a white dude who worked for Vice. And, like, <laughs> you know, and, he, like, and they oh, invited him to a party or some shit. We'll get back into it in one second, but I need to take a quick moment and shout out our sponsor, DistroKid. Man, so many of my homies use DistroKid. It's a music distribution service that makes distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to put their music on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. A million plus artists, and I swear I know at least 100 of them. And now DistroKid has an app. You can use the app to upload new releases, see your DistroKid bank, and get notified when you've earned royalties. You can even check your streaming stats live. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Go to the App Store and download it. DistroKid also has a new feature called Instant Share that allows you to easily share large files securely with collaborators, producers, booking agents, managers, playlist curators, and more. Basically, anybody that needs access to your music, there's an easy way to upload it and send them a link. Go to distrokid.com slash instant share, drag and drop your files to upload, and then you can copy and send your link right there. It's free to send one gigabyte of files. That's like 100 MP3s. Don't quote me on that. Go to distrokid.com slash open mic. That's distrokid.com slash open mic. O-P-E-N-M-I-K-E for 30% off your membership. So the album comes out, doesn't do that great. Going to working on the second one. And the, the prevailing sentiment is that Dale didn't like the funk sound of the first one. Yeah, he, he was tired of it, you know, so he had his B-sides. And, and I remember it came to a head during Dr. Bombay video shoot. Um, but, you know, we get eye examination. 
and that is hieroglyphics all day. I never had real friends till now. I never had to steal ends, cause that's foul. I walk the streets with a baseball bat feeling secure, but I try not to incite fights that's immature. Right, that feels like where they're all gonna go. And and um, he goes there, and ironically enough, Souls of Mischief being hieroglyphics, not this kind of thing that someone manufactured, a, a suit that someone makes you wear, which I don't want to say Ice Cube fully did that to Dell, but he definitely shaped the sound. Um, they are more successful than Dell because they have a record that feels exactly like hieroglyphics is going to feel called 93 to Infinity. And that hits. And that, and, and that hits. That's a hit record. And it's That's right, a record they yeah. played that shit in the tunnel. They yeah. played that every single club you went to anywhere. That's one of them records like they reminisce over you that always got played everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then how did that affect... Because y'all are making the album, or the album's about to come out when, when 93... Like, what's the timeline with 93 is afterwards. Out? 93 okay. comes after Dell. After um, the, the first album, though, not after yes. the second one. Right. Right. So Dell right. and Cube kind of fall out. Dell's going to do his own shit. He don't okay. want to do the funk shit. 93 to Infinity is a hit song in the interim, and Dell's going to do hieroglyphics. He's not going to do that funk shit. He's going to do his own thing. So what were the conversations with, with you like, or with the label like, about changing the direction? I was for it because I saw Souls of Mischief were successful. So I was like, cool. I didn't want to move super. I thought he moved a little too far away from the first record when he made the second record at the time. And I may still feel a little bit like that, but that record is a very good record. And I think a landmark record for underground West Coast hip hop. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, I think um, No Need for Alarm it's a fantastic record. All time banger. I wait to see a skull vibrate when I bury the hatchet. I hope you catch that. I'll attach it to his focus when I broke his head and have feel the rap on my behalf. I think it's better than, than the Souls record, but it doesn't have the hit song. Right. And, and the thing about No Need for Alarm specifically is to me, that song, like that beat, that beat feels oh, man. like high roll. Like that's like the first song I ever heard from them that was like, Oh, this is that gritty, that casual baseline. Like, I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah, this this is that sound. It's fucking the um fifth dimension drums okay. knocking. Yeah. You know, I, I um it's it's complicated a little bit, I'll explain. So Dell sent me the demos and Ice Cube had them too. And they were super unstructured. No hooks. Just rapping. Rapping. Super long bars. Not structured, but the rapping was amazing. Yeah. I bumped into Ice Cube at the Hit Factor. I said, what are we going to do about Dell? Oh, we had talked about Muggs maybe producing a record. Dell, we never even talked to Muggs about Dell. I was like, oh, hell no. Mm-hmm. I'm doing my album. And Cube was like, man, I'm going to let him go to see what he does. And so me and Cube bumped into each other at Hit Factory in New York. And, and he's like, I can't fuck with the album. I don't know what to do. It's on you, my G. And he like advocate. He, he just he just breaks out. He's like, I'm out. Like, I ain't doing it, right? Like, yeah. Cube leaves him to his own devices. I'm out. But he's still eating off it. Domino becomes a manager. They fire Pat Charbonnet and Street Knowledge. Dom now manages them and, and Souls. Dom is one of my best friends in the whole world. So I talk to Dom, and I have a heart-to-heart with him. I say, the record's not good the way it is. But it has some redeeming things. And if he's willing to do the work, I think we can make this record palatable. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. He says, what do you think? And I said, I'm going to dissect the entire record and I'm going to get back to you. I dissected the entire record over a weekend, maybe three days. And I really literally was like, the bar, you know, the verse ends here, the cook comes here. Literally on paper arranged the whole fucking thing. Wow. I sat down with Dom and I went over it. And I said, what do you think? He said, I think this could work. Let's see how Dell feels. Dell was like, okay. And was like, agreed with like 90, 85, 90% of it. Mm-hmm. We went into Battery and it reformatted all the songs between Battery and Chungking in two weeks and mixed it. During that time period, we also did Boo Boo Heads and Treat for the Kitties mm-hmm. in one day. And that's the SD50s joint. I'll admit it. Someone before must have shit it down your neck. Head. What? what can you do dead? With lead instead of the murder, I'll just tell everybody what I heard of. Word up. All of this over boo-boo heads. All of this, all of this. All of this over boo-boo heads. Yeah, we did those in Chung King. Um, cause cause I was like, you need a, you need a couple songs. And he, I didn't really like Treats for the Kitties. I mixed it fucked up. It could have been good, but it wasn't that good. Um, but Boo Boo Heads is fucking great. And we made the album and you know, it, it was what it was, and and it got a great critical response. It sold slightly less than the first one, but showed that Dell was an extremely amazing rapper, and he got to sit side by side with his boys, Souls of Mischief and Casual and them, and feel good about the art he created. Mm-hmm. And that was as that was equally important to me as success was with the record. I will say that record, I might have done the most hands-on A&R work I'd ever done on a record. Wow. Meaning I produced some of it. I helped arrange a lot of it. I oversaw the mixes and I sold the dream to Dell via Domino that made the record considerably better than what it was. That and one I really, I really did a lot of work on. Because if you listen to the record, you know, I think compared to the first one, there's a lot less songs that are like about specific things and more just barring out. Yeah, it's just rapping, which is probably part of the the appeal and part of the downfall of the record. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to think of that as much as it sounds like mostly just rapping, you're saying before you got to it, it was even more rapping. Like it was oh, even- way more, way more. And you know the thematicness, you know, was provided by Cube. Cube provided a lot of the thematic stuff that happened. Was there was there any weirdness with Elektra from Cube not being as much of a part of the second album? Not really. They they were like pretty hands off. They weren't really paying that much attention. Nah, not point. really. Did the fact that he was doing more hyro like music did that make this the, make the second album hit in New York any different than the first one? Even if it wasn't an overall better seller, I hit better. Yeah. I mean, Stretch and Bob played the shit out of it. You know, it was like in that world, it was like a Fat Beats classic. You know, like. It would sat, you know, it went right into the underground of New York. Like those guys all loved it. I think LP was like it's one of his favorite records of all time, um, and I think that all those kind of Cannibal Ox dudes mm-hmm. and all that kind of world of Fat Beats backpack rap loved it. I think it was like it's one of the records that probably is on the holy grail of backpack rap. Okay, so you didn't find you didn't sign Souls of Mischief. I didn't, and I didn't sign casual. That's what, that was and, my next question. And I tried to sign casual, but like late, kind of half-heartedly, and he should have signed with me. I did, I did a million demos with him that have never come out. And he was also my really good friend, and I thought the best rapper in Hyro. Uh, all right, 
tight, hold tight. My rhymes are bright, bold light, shining on them seas who bite and pairing eyesight. Quite a few niggas feel it, but conceal it. I need to get a club to stop them from stealing it. Yeah, he's incredible. And a yeah, he's incredible. producer, too. And I worked with him a lot. His demos were better than his album. That's what I think. Souls of Mischief had one of the greatest demos ever done. Their demo was phenomenal. Cab Fair was on it. 93 was on it. That's when he lost for on it. The okay. fucking demo was ridiculous. So they had tent pole joints on the demo. So they the were shit already... was ridiculous. Yeah. And Casual also had a phenomenal demo, and several of those songs did not come out on the demo. On the album? I mean, it was yeah. like sample clearance album. stuff? or Sample clearance, he just got tired of the songs. Mm. Mm. You know, like the Brawling Broads one, the, 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 um, the Roy Ayers sample one, that was on the demo. A bunch, a couple of songs. I think um, I didn't mean to was on the demo, and and I had so many songs by him, and had done so many songs. Him, we had a song called "I Got a Lot of" that didn't make the album. They couldn't get the sample, and I redid it. And for reasons unknown, Sophia didn't put it on the album. I always thought it might have been personal, but mm. I don't know. It never ended up on the album. So, when this second album came out, where where did that fall on the timeline of your relationship with Elektra? Like versus, you know, versus the 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 KMD stuff and all of that. So after the, you know, my boss Krasno there and he loves me, but when he gets the boot, Sylvia comes in and she's not really feeling me, doesn't like me particularly. I'm also mm -hmm. kind of like a live wire. We weren't, I don't bow down very well. She didn't like me. And she did tell me she was going to keep Dell on the roster. We kept Dell. She didn't drop him. And then, you know, she had some quack, quirky suggestions as to who he should work with, like, Jermaine Dupree <laughs> and Battle Cat, who, who, who could have worked, actually. Battle Cat could have worked, for sure. Could have worked. Just some weird-ass ideas. And I think the guys, Scheme Productions are the guys who had done DOS Effects. And mm. I was pining for Prince Paul, if we had to get one guy. I want to Paul to do that's, it. That sounds, I, I could just even hear that. I can hear Yeah, it would have been cool. Paul's Paul and Dell together would have done some weirdo cool shit. Um, but I left the label, and Dell gave them what became, I think, Future Profits, mm -hmm. um, parts of it, and he was unceremoniously dropped by a registered letter is what I heard. Damn. So yeah. what year did you leave? I don't know, the year I left. I can't remember. <laughs> 96, early 96, okay. I think, late 95, 96. The year I wore a lot of Carhartt and smoked a lot of weed. Oh, man. That that's, year. That's some straight L.A. shit, man. Carhartt was big in New York, too. Okay. We yeah, wore it you, different. You hear about the Tim's. You don't hear about the Carhartt like that. Yeah, we had Tim's, a Carhartt. I had a gold chain on, and I don't know. I was, I was, I was uh, running around the streets. I was, I was definitely a super live wire back then. You ever end up working with Dell again after that yeah, second album? What did y'all end up doing? Yeah. Um, we just we did uh, Dell Meets the Dummies for my record, and we made a bunch of songs. I got a bunch of songs with Dell we never put out um, that are cool. You know, I, I got a gang of them um, just sitting there and a bunch of cool casual ones. Um, I put out a couple of the casual ones. I put out Dell Meets the Dummies. I did a record for um, NBA 2K Live or one of those mm -hmm. called Teamwork. The point of the game is to score baskets, not to lose. <laughs> you look stupid. It's on YouTube somehow. How the fuck that happened? I don't know. But yeah, I did those records, and I did another one with him, and I did a really cool one with him, Pep. No, it's not. That's casual, actually. Yeah, I did. A, 
a crazy one with Cash and, and Pep and um, Opio, I think. I mean, I have songs. I have like a fucking gang of songs with all those guys just sitting on a on my computer or like on on a drive somewhere. You have um, release plans but, for but all I that stuff. But I think the only one I ever released was Dell Meets the Dummies. You got plans. Which he you're kills. Gonna, you're you're going to spring all that stuff on us one day. You're going to open up the yeah. Uh, the I think vault. before the book, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a like. GoFundMe where you get extra shit, like you'll get a flash drive with all these tunes and um, and you'll get that for contributing to my GoFundMe so I can make some content that go along with the book and hire a real independent publicist. Yeah, that's, that's exciting news, man. So I'm going to do vinyl on it too and, and it's a bunch of Hyro songs and some Sadat songs and some other shit. What do you think, and, and you, you touched on this a little bit and kind of in conclusion, you said something I want to, I just want to unpack a little bit. You were saying that that second album especially was really important for West Coast underground hip hop. What do you think what do you think the legacy of that album is? I mean, it showed that dudes in the West Coast could rap really fucking good and like it wasn't all gangster rap. Like they were competitive with the De La Souls and the Native Tongues and and you know the those guys of the world, they were competitive with everybody. And, you know, Oakland, particularly the Bay Area, thought of as like too short land, right? So mm -hmm. hieroglyphics definitely were like, nah, we rap as good as anyone in the whole world. Um, and I think that's what it said. It said people in California are really lyrical and can really rap. You know, we had the far side and Freestyle Fellowship and and other people contributed to that that kind of thing. But but I always thought that when it came to straight rapping, hieroglyphics were the, the apex of that to me. You know what What else is interesting now that I think about it, too? I think that Hyro was one of the best combinations of super lyrical dudes and dope production, though. Yeah. I always thought that A-plus in particular was a fucking really good producer, as was, as was Domino and Casual. So that's, you know, that's two-thirds of the crew. They're all pretty good yeah. when I think about it. Um, and then Dell made a lot of his own bangers, too. And Dell as well, you yeah. know? I mean, Domino, I think, on that second album really shines. Yeah. Like, No Need for Alarm is the song. That shit is so fucking good. Yeah. That fucking beat is so crazy. It really is. It really is. That was like my favorite song in the whole album. Yeah, to think. me, it no was Need No Need for Alarm. for Alarm to Catch a Bad One. Like, them two. It's like, yes. You know what I'm saying? People have a memory loss. They don't remember I'm the boss. The clock, the phone big when I close it. In on your men and your faculty. Your whack of be out my face. You must be basic if you think that you could tackle the triumphant. That shit is so fucking funky. I mean, Boo Boo Heads is pretty fucking yeah. good, too. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and, you know. And I threw Curious on the intro. And Curious... And those guys and Doom would all hang out a lot and smoke out and just rap, 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 you know? Mm -hmm. um, so it was, it was always cool to, you know, see those dudes like rock and it was, it was always fun to be around those guys. And the sessions when those cats were in New York were, you know, CM Mob was always in there. And if we're in California and Oakland, Curious was always with them and, and you know, Stretch. And Bob, particularly Stretch, was really tight with, with the souls, too. Um, we were just, you know, that was a fun time. And we all were like, those were our West Coast cousins. Like, those are the guys we're out there. That's who we fall in with, those cats. That's what's up. And vice versa. Well, that's, that's amazing, man. Um, I do think that's very important music. Uh, and it's, sometimes it's hard to put that in context, you know, how important that stuff is. Because it's hard to, you know, if you weren't there, 
like experiencing that stuff. You don't realize how it, how important it was to hear a record with that quality, with that kind of rapping on it, coming out on a major label, like with you know big singles and big budgets. Like that type of stuff inspires generations of rappers. You know? I mean, the, the other thing I always think is so cool about Hyro is um, I feel like they they them much like the Beastie Boys, they shifted culture, the culture of rap. Mm -hmm. So they're like, obviously the Beastie Boys do it first, but it's cooler when Hyro does it because they're black. So Hyro ends up with songs in skate videos, right? Mm -hmm. Unquestionable, Mike Carroll skates to Burnt and then Javante Turner skates to, uh, is it Lose in the End? I think it's Lose in the End or Fear Itself. I think it's Fear Itself. He skates to it, and then I think there's another cat in one of them those videos skating to also Hyro. So Hyro's in these big skate videos, and it aligns skateboarding with rap music, and it's mm -hmm. a particularly Bay. Those guys are all Bay Area guys. We knew them all. They were at the early Hyro shows. Javante Turner was good friends with all of us. Mike Carroll was our boy. So like we're at those shows and in the audience are like the best skateboarders in the world. And those, those kids I'm talking about were, they're the Bay Area version of the kids who become kids. Mm. They're like, you know, they're those guys. And they're the greatest skateboarders in the world at that time. So we have this advertisement in this big skate video and these guys who skate and love rap, all these kids across the country watching that video all become Hyrule fans. So Hyrule has this dedicated fan base of skateboarding, snowboarding, like multi-culty, most, mostly white kids who love hieroglyphics and rap music. And they become a culture shifter because they embrace that whole thing. Mm -hmm. And those guys are still their fans at their show to these days. Wow. And allowed them to tour like an indie rock band. So they toured in a way, a hard ticket way that no one toured back then. They were nonstop touring, almost like a rap Grateful Dead, and they would do a high road tour, which would be Casual Dell Souls, and they'd all go out. And then they put Third Eye Vision out together, mm -hmm. which sells 100,000 copies on their own. After they all get dropped by major labels, and they have a big, independent, successful record, they tour behind that, and they bring that whole kind of cross-cultural exchange together with them on the road. And, and I think that that is also something that I'm endlessly proud of having been involved in peripherally and to see happen. It was like me and my friends in New York growing up skateboarding, we listened to Run DMC and LL and Public Enemy and the Beastie Boys, and we went from punk rock right to that, and that was our shit. So this was that same thing five years later, six years later in a different city, but it was the same kind of energy. These guys were like into all this other shit, and they, they ended up loving rap, and this was their soundtrack for skateboarding. And I thought that was so fucking cool. It kind of made it okay for all skateboarders to listen to rap music. And, you know, it's important because I always think that skateboarders and, and rap cats are like the craziest motherfuckers in the world, so they should all go hang out. Right, that overlap is crazy. Yeah. And that overlap has been responsible for the success of a lot of artists. So I think that is a really good thing to unpack. You know what I'm saying? I mean, certainly the Beastie Boys, right? Mm -hmm. And... And then I think hieroglyphics have, have, they're in that thing. Cypress Hill was in that thing. Yeah, and a lot of the LA Underground cast too. Like you look at a lot of the Freestyle Fellowship, like a lot, a lot of that culture, that skateboard culture and underground rap specifically, like there's been a very important overlap. And I think that's, it's, it's really good. I mean, right Fat Beats kind of kids of the world, yep. like, you know, they were probably going there with the skateboard. And, and I always think those kids are like my little brothers because that was me and my friends. Yeah, man. You know, we were skateboarders who, who loved rap music because it was fucking hyper aggressive and, 
punk rock got corny. And so we moved over to rap. And so seeing that part of it, like the, the cultural angle that Hyrule has, and they built this whole kind of, you know, how they, they were one of the first groups to really understand how to market on the web. And they had, you know, Hyrule Imperium mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Those guys are super duper duper fucking smart kids. And, and I don't think as much as they're not town music, I don't think anywhere other than the Bay could, could have, have produced. Yeah, right. Because they're like, you know, the level of intellect and, and militancy combined with gangster shit in Oakland is like nowhere else in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think they're really reflective of being from Oakland. And, you know, I thought that that was super cool that, that they all got their messaging out to the world. I'm just, I'm always proud that I, I was part of the thing and, and I'm still really good friends with all of them to this day. And, you know, that I got to connect them with Domino. They're, they're one of the groups, you know, I'm friends with all my old groups for the most part. But they're like one of those, you know, look, Tajay and Domino were with me at my dad's memorial. Mm. You know, like, that's my relationship with them. Like, I fuck with them super hard. And those guys stay at my house all the time when they come to fucking New York. Even when they come to L.A., Del and Dom stayed here when we went to see the movie mid-90s at the premiere. And they were like, come with us to the movie. Like, that's our relationship. It's, it's way more than, than some other people I know in this world that I love from rap. Mm. But we have like something that's far bigger than rap that I have with like Stretch and, and Curious and a few select others. Sounds like family. It is family, yeah. 100%. Like, that's look, great. I was in Oakland and what did I do when I went to Oakland? I was there like a couple of, like a month or so ago and I tapped in with Dom and caught dinner and then I hung on Tajay the next day. You know, that's what so, it is. It's a beautiful thing, man. Well, uh, I, I love being able to talk about, um, you know, important artists and especially the ones that, that uh, appear to be great humans and, and you got that side of it to be able to tell too. What I didn't tell you is, I, I forgot, this got to go in there. It's just so crazy. Two things. So Souls of Mischief made an album of Adrian Young. Mm-hmm. Like, so that album is all based on this thing that happened with me and those cats. We were at a club in San Francisco off Market Street called The Upper Room. I think it was The Upper Room. I could be wrong. It's right off Market. It's on top of Burger King. And it was... Frisco dudes. And, you know, look, we were, they were popping. Souls 93 was a hit record. Man, I had a chain on and a fucking big watch and all kinds of shit. And we were in the club and dudes were, you know, I was probably flossing the hardest, but the chicks were hollering and we were, we were the center of attention. Saphir was with us. He was still cool with everyone. And he's cool with everyone again now. Shout out to Sphere. I hope he's doing well. Shout out to Sphere. I know he's been through a lot sure. of shit. Absolutely. Um, so we were all together and we went out. It, it was feeling, as they would say, mangy. Shit's mm-hmm. mangy up in here. Let's get out of here. It was feeling a little tight. Like dudes was catching the vibe. So we went out to the parking lot to smoke, which is right around the corner, literally like down the block from City Hall. I can't make this shit up. A dude rolled out of rolled up in a van, side door open, like one of those old school vans. Oh no. Motherfucker was like 5'8, 135 pounds, pulled down a ski mask and pulled out a fucking a fucking Smith and Wesson 9mm, because I had the same gun. That's why I remember it so clearly, the way it flashed. Chrome Smith and Wesson, pulled it out of his waist and said, This ain't no motherfucking joke. Get on the fucking floor. I'm jacking all of y'all. Yo. And Saphir is with us, and Menace Society had already came out. It felt like Menace to Society. I'm from New York. 
it's not the first time a gun been pointed at me and I didn't have one and I ran like a motherfucker. That's and right. I'm not afraid to say it because no motherfuckers are not getting my watch or my chain in San Francisco. It was not going to happen to Dante Ross. So, <laughs> so I ran and Tajay, the only person in the world fast Tajay might have been Carl Lewis because I look and he passes me by and we book like book. We hear boom, 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 three shots. So we run down by a parking lot, like it's, you know, like uh, on an incline, and we're posted up there fucking trying to figure out what happened. I'm like, I'm like, man, I think Safir, because Safir was right next to us when it happened. And I think me and Safir were the target, because he had a chain too, and he was flossing. We heard sirens. Mm. So we figured cops are there. Maybe we could crawl out from the parking lot. We come up, and Safir comes by in the car. He's like, get in the fucking ride. I was like, I thought you got shot. He said, no, man, Dom got shot. I think he got shot in the face oh, no. or the head. And we cruise over there, and Dom is there with cops around him, and they're asking him all these questions. And I walk up, and the cops are like, stand back. And he's like, let him in. And I'm like, what the fuck happened? He had powder burns on the side of his face. Can't lie, powder burn on the side of his face. He said, homeboy came right at me and shot right at me, but shot right past my head. Dang. And I said, yo, that's because you're a good-ass person. Your karma saved your ass. And he was shook up. And then I said, I heard three shots. What the fuck were the three shots at? He goes, oh, he was shooting at you and Tajay for running. Damn. And I was like, damn. And I was like, what you doing? He's like, man, he said, man, I'm going to see my mom and give her a hug right now. Fuck this shit. And the cops let him go and he went. And we all reconvened the next day in Hyde Street Studios where they always recorded. That's in the Catch a Bad One video. And we chopped it up to see what happened. I will say that that's also like the near-death experience we had together definitely made all of us tighter. And ironically, right. me and Dom were already super-duper tight. Like, he, he was already super, we were super close with that whole shit, like, made us even closer. Wow. So, listen to that Adrian Young record, because that's what it's all based on. What if Domino had got killed? Yeah, you get a whole different perspective on it from now. Uh, well... That's a crazy story. And speaking of crazy stories, I'm sure uh, the next time we speak, you'll have a bunch. We'll be doing, we'll be talking about Old Dirty. Oh, wow. I'm So I'm certain we'll hear some more, some more crazy tales uh, next time we sit down. Damn.